a Republican, I'm, I'm more than uh, you know, uh, willing to admit it. For a long time, Republicans have been the problem, refusing to acknowledge uh, the, the challenge of, of human-caused climate change and, of course, refusing to act. Today, I can tell you confidently and having experienced it myself, both parties are the problem. House Democrats uninvited former Republican Congressman Carlos Curbelo from testifying on a carbon tax this week. Did the Dems prioritize politics over finding climate solutions? We speak with Curbelo to get his side of the story. Plus, reports that Joe Biden will take a middle-of-the-road approach to climate policy. Is it a winning strategy or a killer in the primary? We discuss in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media. We have Shane Skelton on the line, a Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. We also have Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, here with us. He's a partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and the former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. Brandon, um, I know you were tuning into the Sunrise Movement's rally for the Green New Deal earlier this week, so I wanted to hear from you what you took away from that. I know you're following this closely. I have four main takeaways. Yeah. Try to do them quickly. Number one, um, this rally was the final stop on a Green New Deal tour. So for our listeners who may not be following, Sunrise has been hosting these rallies all across the country, packing these auditoriums. So if you remember in 2010, many people in D.C. missed the like grassroots energy that was happening on the Republican side that led to a big wave. Uh, I think this is happening on the Democratic side. Sunrise is movement building. They're using these events to organize. They're training their supporters to go out in their communities and host town halls and to organize. So this is very exciting. Number two point. Uh, if you haven't watched Varshini speak, I've seen like thousands of speakers in my life, public speakers. She's the head of the Sunrise Movement. She, yeah. she is electric, man. She has a real talent to like get people amped up. Number three, uh, I was doing this on the live stream for Facebook, which I've like never done. If you want to see the worst of humanity, watch those like Facebook comments next to the next to the live stream. It was like was that your so- first Facebook comment experience? Yeah, interesting. It was like I can summarize it for you, like. Trump 2020, F you, troll. That was like basically for an hour and a half like on the on the stream. It was very disheartening. Uh, and then next point is, um, you know, uh, Senator Markey said at the rally, uh, we want the socialism that the fossil fuel companies have gotten. Uh, and the next day after the rally, I was, you know, so excited about watching it. Uh, but what I'm learning and hearing from many people is that uh, when you know Bernie Sanders and AOC and others and Senator Markey in his comments are talking like democratic socialism, people are getting the wrong idea on the ground. And I think we need to be very careful about that because what they're hearing is anti-capitalism, government takeover of everything. And you know the thing that's resonating right now is when Mitch McConnell stood up and said, you know, I will never let socialists take over our United States government. I think that was where the Grim Reaper comment even came up, which we uh, heard from Kathy Castor last episode uh, about. Um, And I think that came up in our interview with the uh, leaders of New Consensus, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, Damon Drummer, and Zach Exley, where I asked them to address the socialism question, and they were frustrated because that's their every day, and they feel like it's being misunderstood. But I think you have to acknowledge that in the broader public, they are conflating concepts. And if you don't tackle that head on, it will continue to be confused and maybe misunderstood. And so I think that's on them to be really, really clear. And even if it's annoying for them to do. Yeah, I mean, if, if you self-describe as a socialist and you don't want to be aligned with socialists, then you need to articulate exactly what a Democrat socialist is and how it's different than, you know, a traditional um, socialist. And then. You know, also, Brandon, you say that, you know, this is not taking over the entire economy, but you look at something like the Green New Deal and I, you know, excited because you'd been talking about it. I was excited to see it. And a lot of what they want to do is economy wide. It's not about, you know, getting more solar panels out there and, and cleaning up buildings and, and, and cars. It's about taking over health care, taking over the labor market, fixing wages, um, job guarantees. I mean, that is what most people I know would consider the beginning of socialism. But more important on the rally itself, 
I didn't watch it. I will admit I wasn't there. I didn't live stream it. But someone else didn't watch it, uh, and that's Josh Siegel, who's a great reporter at the Washington Examiner, who's covered climate in a very comprehensive and fair way, who's taken Republicans to task on articulating you know, solutions and, and how they're going to engage on this issue. And apparently, uh, he wasn't able to get into the event because he works for a news outlet that Sunrise Movement views as insufficiently liberal. And that, that's just... That's a real shame, not only because uh, it's the beginning of, of, of how things turn wrong in a democracy, but also because they obviously weren't familiar with Josh. There are some people who call themselves journalists, and I can understand why you wouldn't want them at one of your events. Josh is not one of those people. And if they're not reading his work and seeing you know, how he's articulating uh, his views, not his views, but, but, but the issue itself, the science behind the issue and, and how politicians are addressing it, then they're not really holding up their end of the, the bargain of trying to get to a good place on climate either. Yeah, I just wanted to add, you know, Democrats are having a robust conversation about how to treat media companies. Elizabeth Warren just rejected uh, an offer to do a Fox town hall, and she basically said, I don't want to be associated with this organization. Um, the D.C. Examiner has been a problem for me personally. They have done hit pieces on me, never talked to me about it. Uh, but Josh is a very fair reporter. Shane actually recommended that I talk to him a couple months ago, um, and I was skeptical, but because I trust Shane, um, I have been speaking with Josh sometimes, and I found him to be very fair. Yeah, and as, as a journalist, I think, you know, it's tough because the line of news has been somewhat obscured to the point where you can't really tell what's commentary and what's news. And things have become so politicized that if you don't take a side, sometimes you're actually punished as a reporter, even though that's not really the role you're supposed to play. With that said, the Washington Examiner is known for being a right-leaning publication, and there was some controversy around how it covered immigration issues at the Mexico border. But again, Josh's reporting does not fall into a commentary category. He's very good at what he does. And and, you know, a lot of journalists came to his defense and said that he really did have a right to be at that Sunrise Movement event. And so, you know, press freedom isn't always convenient, but it is a part of democracy. And uh, I guess I hope that was just a one off situation. And and Josh will have the opportunity to report at future events uh, the same way any other journalist would. Another thing that came up at the Green New Deal event earlier this week was Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's statement that there should be, quote, no middle ground when it comes to fighting climate change. She was referring specifically to a climate plan that's supposedly in the works by former vice president and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. We'd been wondering what move Biden would make following the release of Beta O'Rourke and Jay Inslee's climate plans. Then, almost as if to answer our question, Reuters published an exclusive story that noted Biden was looking to pursue a middle ground climate policy that would serve as an alternative to Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. Now, Biden has not actually released a climate change proposal, but according to Reuters, he's looking to write one that will appeal to both environmentalists and blue collar voters who elected Donald Trump. The plan will reportedly focus on initiatives such as rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and putting regulations on fuel efficiency and other emissions. Biden said he will release his plan in a speech later this month. So the story almost seems like it was a test balloon that Biden's camp was throwing up to see how it would fare. And it turned out to be immediately shot down by progressive members of his own party. And he was even shot down by Biden himself, who said that he has never been middle of the road on climate policy. And his press secretary came out and said that Reuters got the story wrong. So, Brandon, what do you think of this? I have several thoughts on this. First, the backlash is evidence that climate change is like a top issue in this campaign. So that's exciting. Second, I want to see the plan first uh, before I comment on it. Like, imagine that. Uh, but spoiler alert, a moderate Democrat may release a moderate climate change policy. I don't know why that's shocking. Uh, luckily, there are like 50 Democrats running and you have lots of choices. <laughs> do you think this was a test balloon? Like, Do you think he actually leaked maybe part of this to see how it played and then he's going to react? I don't know. I mean, I would say if he releases something that is super middle of the road, um, I he would not get my vote. Um, and if he ended up being the Democratic nominee, my first call would be to Greg Schultz, my good friend running his campaign. I'd say, put me to work. So that's how I view it. Um, the interesting thing, too, is like what is middle of the road and what is moderate is changing. Um, last week, a bill was introduced in Congress uh, to do net zero uh, carbon emissions by 2050. 
Uh, this was by Representative uh, Lujan. And, you know, that was considered probably radical a couple of years ago and now is probably considered moderate middle of the road. So that is changing, which is exciting. You know, what I'm the, the type of plans that I am personally excited about is the type of stuff that Jay Inslee's putting out. He had a bunch of proposals this week. He put out a, um, a proposal on Climate Corps. It would have three groups, the National Climate Service Corps for young people to serve on sustainability solutions, a global climate service corps that would allow Americans overseas to, to join on working on climate mitigation, and then a green careers network, which would help permanent job creation in a clean energy economy. This is very exciting. Today, put out an evergreen economy plan that would be $9 trillion and function as a GI bill for fossil fuel workers displaced by a green economy. Interesting. Wow. Uh, Yeah, I knew he was rolling out more and more in pieces, but there's clearly so much more that we haven't even got to yet. So interesting to see. And I know he's hustling now to get even involved with the debates. So he's he's trying to get those... those, uh, that fundraising together so he can even show up on stage. Uh, Shane, what are your thoughts on the Biden middle of the road uh, supposed plan? Yeah, I mean, I'm a waste of space on this segment because, you know, it's a Democratic primary and I can just eat popcorn and watch. I mean, I think what 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 I like to see is what he puts forward and how he says it's achievable. I'll take a middle of the road plan any day of the week. If you give me a path to passage and I can sort of visualize Republicans and others coming behind it. Um, but, but this Democratic primary is going to be insane because I just don't think the Democratic primary voter is anywhere near uh, where the average American voter is. And so what I'm hoping is that Joe Biden puts forward something that even if he gets mocked by the left, I can look at it and go, hey, here are some concrete ideas from someone who served in Congress and in the White House as vice president uh, that he thinks he can actually achieve. And he knows a lot of the Republicans in Congress, so, so he might have a good line on this. That's what I'm hoping for. But again, I think this Democratic primary is going to get sillier before it gets better. Well, I think there's a not so silly piece of this. It really gets back to the core policy that's actually going to pass at the end of the day. And a key part of that is natural gas. And I think that's what people are kind of zeroing in on with respect to Biden. They looked at one of his climate advisors, Heather Zeichel, who previously served uh, in the Obama White House as an assistant to the president on energy and climate. And then she went on to serve on the board of the LNG, liquefied natural gas giant, Chenier Energy Partners, uh, just up until last year. And apparently she made nearly $1.1 million doing that. So there's people on the progressive side of the Democratic Party saying, hey, who's helping steer your climate plan here? Is this where we really want to go? And then there's a bigger question that Bill McKibben brought up uh, in a recent piece in The Hill saying, okay, look, natural gas maybe had its place in 2008 when the economy was tanking and it was an amazing opportunity for U.S. innovation and they seized it. And Since then, the facts have changed. We know that fracking can affect water quality, it can cause earthquakes, and there's a really unknown, really, impact of of methane emissions. We don't know how big of an impact that's having. That might offset every bit of, of climate benefit that natural gas produces. And so McKibben's point was, hey, Biden, why are you pushing a 2008 answer in 2019 when the facts have changed so decisively? So I think that natural gas piece is really interesting and key. And I'll be watching to see if Biden actually puts that in his plan or um, avoids it altogether. So so Joe Biden's path to victory, if there is one, runs through the industrial Midwest. And right now, areas like Ohio and Pennsylvania are experiencing some of the same natural gas wealth that states like Texas have seen in the past. So I I have to imagine that natural gas is a big part of his plank because he's not going to out climate um, some of the, uh, the other contenders like a Jay Inslee, but he can out sort of Midwest. He can win those states that are critical to anyone who wants to become president of the United States. And he's not going to gain the, the, the trust of the blue collar workers by trying to take their jobs away and shut down an industry that's really only grown in that region of the country over the past 10 years. Well, he's certainly got a lot of pushback from his uh, Democratic competitors. Uh, Bernie Sanders tweeting out saying uh, he's this this plan would doom future generations. Uh, Jay Inslee piling on saying that if your house was on fire, you wouldn't seek a middle ground approach to putting it out. When your planet is on fire, we shouldn't seek one either. So exciting Democratic debates to come. Arshney called it a death sentence for her generation. I'll make a Game of Thrones uh, analogy for all of our listeners. I don't want to have any spoilers, but if you haven't watched the Battle of Winterfell yet, too oh my bad. god, that was like we cannot ago. get through an episode now with you men- not mentioning Game of Thrones. <laughs> so here's my analogy: in god. the Battle of Winterfell, the Hound, you know, is up against the wall. And he's basically like giving up. He's like, "We can't win. We can't beat death." And then the guy next to him points to Arya kicking ass, and he says, "Tell her that." 
Arya and like Varsinia. <laughs> I think her, <laughs> that's how I view like Varsinia. She's just out there kicking ass, <laughs> taking it on. <laughs> oh man, Game of Thrones references are never gonna end. But with that, let's turn now to Congressman Corbello and the drama around this week's climate hearing. The House Ways and Means Committee had a hearing on Wednesday to discuss the economic and health consequences of climate change. Initially, they had invited former Congressman Carlos Corbello, a Republican from Florida, who had been known for his strong stance on climate change. Last Friday, the committee rescinded the invitation after pushback from Democrats who were concerned it would give Curbelo too much of a platform. According to House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer's spokesperson, quote, Mr. Hoyer felt it would be inappropriate for Mr. Curbelo to testify, given he has been unclear about his 2020 electoral plans and has a long track record of being unable to persuade his Republican colleagues that climate change is real and needs to be addressed. We actually called up Congressman Curbelo and asked him for his thoughts on this exchange. Here's that interview. So, Congressman Curbelo, we we really appreciate you joining the show. We have uh, all read the news in recent days and looked at the Twitter debates, and we saw that you were disinvited from the Ways and Means Committee on on climate. So, we wanted to hear from you what happened in your own words and to give our listeners a more entire picture of how this all went down. Well, regrettably, it's a it's kind of a normal uh, episode in Washington D.C. where partisan politics takes over. Uh, Chairman Richie Neal, who I have a good relationship with, uh, worked well with uh, during my time in Congress and, and my two years on the Ways and Means Committee, uh, invited me to testify. He thought it um, it would be compelling for a Republican uh, who was until recently uh, a member of the committee uh, to go and make the case on why it's important for Congress to act uh, with regards to climate policy and specifically uh, to discuss uh, carbon pricing and how that could uh, solve uh, so many, um, uh, you know, the challenges related to climate change that we face, and also uh, lead to innovation and, and new opportunities and jobs, and, and uh, uh, really help uh, help us uh, accelerate the process of getting to um, a clean energy economy. Uh, and that was all good. I was preparing my testimony, uh, which I ended up publishing anyway. And uh, then I uh, unexpectedly got an email from Chairman Neal's uh, chief tax counsel letting me know that due to circumstances beyond their control, uh, they had to uh, withdraw the invitation. Uh, so, you know, what happened was that some uh, of the more... Um, Partisan Democrats uh, complained to Chairman Neal and to uh, House Democratic leadership, and um, Democratic leader uh, Stenny Hoyer uh, stepped in and essentially uh, compelled, uh, forced uh, Chairman Neal to withdraw the invitation. Uh, so that's what happened. Uh, now I ended up publishing my testimony anyway because I think um, it it can be helpful um, in this process, and uh, I. Because I had made plans to do so, I uh, went ahead and attended the hearing because I thought it was uh, wonderful that the uh, Ways and Means Committee was uh, going to dedicate some time to the issue. And I wanted to uh, hear what uh, the witnesses and uh, some of my former colleagues had to say. Congressman, this is uh, Shane. And, and again, thank you so much for coming on with us. I'm very excited to talk to you about this. I've become incredibly frustrated because, you know, out here in California and, and with some of the people we interact with with the show, what they've been telling me for a while is climate solutions aren't possible with Republicans. So the only way out, you know, is to elect Democrats. And my argument has been there's never going to be a supermajority in Congress and in every state at the same time, work with Republicans, invest in Republicans who want to help. You're clearly, you know, one of the, if not the leader on that side. And I'm starting to wonder is it possible to do this with Democrats? Are they ever going to be able to separate the politics of climate change, which they think is a winning issue at the ballot box, and the actual problem that needs to be solved, which requires people like you having a voice, uh, hopefully people like me, at least not not in the legislative branch, but you know, having a voice? Or do you think that they, that they just see it as a way to win elections and, and are not concerned at all about actually tackling the problem? So that's an important point. And first thing I'll say is no matter what issue anyone cares about, whether it's climate, immigration, the debt, guns, whatever it is, 
uh, people need to understand how our government was designed, uh, you know, a, a little over a couple hundred years ago. Uh, this is a government that's designed to work on the basis of consensus. Uh, this isn't a parliamentary system where a majority makes a decision and, and then everything moves very quickly. We have uh, two legislative chambers. One of them has a 60% um, threshold to move legislation. Uh, of course, there's a House, which is majoritarian, but that legislative body needs to uh, move legislation as well. And then the president has to sign it. So clearly, uh, the founding fathers wanted strong consensus uh, if we were going to get anything done in this country. We're not going to change that, at least any not anytime soon. Uh, the structure of our government um, is enshrined in the Constitution, and uh, it would take decades to change that. So whatever you care about, whatever cause you want to advance, you are going to have to get bipartisan support. Last time, Democrats had full control of the government, including 60 votes in the Senate, which is extremely rare. They were unable to do anything meaningful on climate. They tried. I'll get points for that. But even with absolute control over the government, they were unable to get uh, enough Democratic senators to move on cap and trade. So I tell people all the time, uh, we can do this one of two ways. We can try to make this a bipartisan issue and get a solution that way, or we can just wait until Democrats have, yeah, I don't think 60 is going to cut it, maybe 65 Democratic senators, uh, a, a healthy House majority, and a Democratic president. Now, I don't think uh, on the issue of climate, we have the time to wait uh, for that um, uh, to be the composition of government. And it's also very likely that that never happens. So uh, we need to get uh, bipartisan solutions. And for a long time, uh, being a Republican, I'm, I'm, I'm more than uh, you know uh, willing to admit it, for a long time, Republicans have been the problem, refusing to acknowledge uh, the, the challenge of, of human-caused climate change, and, of course, refusing to act. Today, I can tell you confidently and having experienced it myself, both parties are the problem. Uh, Republicans are moving in the right direction, but still not where they need to be. And Democrats uh, are pushing Republicans away or attempting to as they try to move in the right direction preferring the politics of climate change over the solutions of climate change. And we saw that play out in the House uh, just this week, where uh, a, a Democratic chairman, Richie Neal, who, who's committed to solutions, who's a consensus builder by nature, uh, uh, really, uh, I thought, made a smart decision by having a Republican um, come in and make this case. Uh, and you know, the Democratic leadership intervened. And my question to, to Leader Hoyer, who I know and respect and have had a very good relationship with over the years is, you know, get, what's more important? Um, you know, the, the, the potential political risk of giving me a platform where I can speak on this issue or uh, actually solving or advancing solutions to uh, what is today the greatest threat to humankind? And I think that the answer to that question uh, is obvious, but uh, Leader Hoyer got it wrong. And unless uh, people start changing that mentality, uh, we're, we're going to be stuck. Congressman, this is Brandon. I, you raised so many uh, points there. I, I have three questions for you. One, on the structural issue uh, of the 60% supermajority, I'm wondering, where do you stand on the filibuster? Do you think it should be uh, continued? Because that's not in the Constitution. It's something that could be ended. Number two, um, so much has changed just in the last couple of months since you've been out of Congress with climate. Um, the Green New Deal has been announced. Uh, there are Republicans talking about your carbon tax bill. I'm wondering, in the new, in the new environment, you're talking to some of your Republican colleagues— like if carbon tax was put on the floor now, you know, many Democrats would support it. What do you, how many Republicans do you think would support it now? Has has the dynamic changed enough in the last couple of months with climate now being a priority to get more votes for this? 
And number three, I was wondering, could we make a trade? How about a Curbelo testimony for a Mueller testimony? Always out of bounds, Brandon. <laughs> Always out of bounds. You can't you can't keep between the lines, can you? <laughs> so so I personally think that the uh, sixty vote uh, rule should be preserved uh, in the Senate. Uh, I think it has served our country well. Uh, I, I don't think that that rule is the problem. I think that the, the people in the Senate are the problem. Uh, I, I just did a fellowship at, at Harvard, and a lot of the students would ask me and, and, and are thinking about how to make government work better. And uh, you know, we talked about a lot of different ways that we could change some of the rules in the House, for example, to promote more bipartisanship. And and certainly the Senate can do that as well. But ultimately, this is about leadership and about the decisions that individual lawmakers make. Uh, and everyone in Congress has to decide what's more important, uh, advancing solutions and ideas that will um, be good for the country, that will improve quality of life in our country, or is it more important to get reelected? And unfortunately, uh, for for too many members of Congress, uh, the latter is a priority. So I wouldn't change the 60 vote rule. I, I would change uh, the people who refuse to sit at the table to have a healthy dialogue and to compromise. Uh, with regards to the changes in, um, in Congress, uh, look, the last few months have been wonderful. Uh, the Congress that I left in January uh, there wasn't really a healthy debate over solutions uh, on climate change. Uh, this Congress is different. Uh, the Ways and Means hearing yesterday, all of the witnesses, even the witness invited by Republicans, was making the case that climate change is real, that it represents a major threat to, uh, to, uh, to our country and to the world, and that uh, we need solutions. And uh, Chairman Brady said uh, clearly, explicitly, that uh, we need to do a lot more uh, to become uh, the clean energy leaders to reduce carbon emissions. So we have seen a lot of progress uh, in the last few months. We are moving in the right direction. We just need to accelerate that process. And then uh, with regards to testimony, look, I, I had not been back in the Capitol since uh, I left the last Congress. I was there because I was invited. Happy to contribute any way I can. I care deeply about this issue. I live in a part of the country that's especially exposed to sea level rise and uh, some of the other effects of, of climate change like ocean acidification. Uh, so this is personal for me. Uh, and yes, I think Robert Mueller should testify as well. It's important to get his perspective on uh, on this whole uh, special um, counsel investigation. But uh, I think that's a little off topic. Uh, appreciate you taking that one on, Congressman. Um, I guess, you know, we're talking about what's happening on Capitol Hill. I'm curious to hear from you what was happening on the ground and in your district. I know there's just there are some Republicans who are coming out and supporting climate action. There are also some who vehemently oppose it. But what do you hear on the ground from your constituents when when you put out a climate bill, a carbon tax bill? What was their response? Did you have to bring your constituents along or were they kind of pushing you in this direction? I'm just curious how that played out. A lot of people were intrigued, and, and and we have to realize, you know, those of us who follow this closely or who work on it, uh, we understand what a price on carbon means. But uh, there's still a lot of education that 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 has to take place. Uh, a lot of um, voters just just don't completely understand the concept. Um, and you know, the way I explain it is, it, if someone drives by your neighborhood and and you know, litters, throws a bunch of trash out the window, uh, there's a cost to that. And, um, you know, it, it's not fair for that cost to be hidden or to be uh, tucked away someplace. It, 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 it should be acknowledged and um, we should take action to, to prevent that from happening in the future. And that's kind of what the, the same approach we have to take to carbon pollution. So, People in my district, just like a lot of my colleagues in Congress, were intrigued. I mean, we took a, a unique approach to carbon pricing. Uh, I, I decided that we should repeal the gas tax while at the same time 
uh, pricing emissions because I think the gas tax is uh, a regressive tax in um, in many ways. So yeah, a lot more education needs to take place. But I'll tell you, even though, and this is related to a previous question too, even though a lot of Republicans aren't coming out explicitly for carbon pricing, I can tell you that many of them are intrigued by it. They're asking questions. I had colleagues, former colleagues come up to me yesterday when I was uh, in the committee hearing room and tell me that, that they want to learn more, that they've been thinking about it. So we are moving closer and closer to a bipartisan solution. Uh, I think there will be a watershed moment uh, in the coming years, uh, the sooner the better, because we know time is running out. I guess I'd like to put it to you, Congressman, do you think that climate came up during the last election? Did it play into your campaign in a positive or negative way? So unfortunately, it wasn't a major issue in the campaign. And I say unfortunately, uh, because it's an issue where I spent uh, a majority of my time and political capital in, in while I was in Congress. However, uh, none of the big environmental groups that spend big on elections uh, came to my district to defend me. And that's one of the big challenges that we face, that uh, Republicans uh, who do step out, who do invest in this issue, who want to make a difference, uh, are not recognized for that work. And a lot of these environmental organizations uh, are more committed to electing Democrats than they are to solving uh, some of our environmental challenges. And, and of course, by taking that position uh, or by behaving that way, they make the problem worse because other Republicans see that and say, why would I take a chance and dedicate time and effort to this cause if I'm just going to get punished for it? Or in my case, not that I got punished, but uh, really, the support that you see for a lot of Democrats was not there. Um, so uh, it, it wasn't a major issue. And I think uh, had those groups come and invested and highlighted my environmental record, uh, I think the, the result of the election may have been different. I only lost by um, I lost by less than two percentage points. So um, but hey, I'm not I'm not uh, upset or bitter about that at all. I'm just recognizing um, one of the challenges we face to getting bipartisan climate action uh, being that a lot of the environmental organizations and the, the individuals who spend heavily to promote sound climate policy uh, think that that only means supporting Democrats. And again, that's just going to get us farther away from the solution. I take your point. Yeah, that's helpful context. I guess just to to wrap up here, are you hopeful? What are you, what is your feeling on where this is going? I'm not only hopeful, I'm optimistic. Uh, I I know this issue well. I know uh how members of Congress think about this issue and I can tell you that uh where we are today uh is light years away from the Congress I left in early January of of this year. Republicans uh, understand that they uh, have to uh, play a role, a, a productive role uh, in this process. They are starting to think about what solutions they are going to take to the table uh, when it comes time to negotiate. Uh, many of them are distancing themselves from the presidency responsible rhetoric, uh, and uh, th they see a political benefit in distinguishing themselves from that rhetoric. So uh, again, every factor that is pushing uh, this discussion, this issue, is pushing in the right direction right now. Uh, Republicans understanding uh, that they need to evolve quickly, uh, younger uh, voters um, uh, participating more uh, heavily in elections, uh, the media is covering this issue in, in a broader, more comprehensive, smarter way. Um, you have major oil companies uh, advocating openly and publicly for carbon pricing, uh, putting resources behind that. So uh, things are moving in the right direction. Uh, I just wish we could do more to accelerate uh, the process. Congressman Carlos Corbello, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your time, Congressman. Sure, keep in touch. I look, forward, you, to, look forward to doing it again in the future. Shane, what did you make of our conversation with Corbello? 
Yeah, I mean, I thought he was great. I thought his answers were great. I think he was being very respectful of both, you know, current House leadership and of, of Chairman Neal. I'm continue. I continue to be frustrated because I, I I genuinely don't understand. So for context for our listeners, uh, you have committee chairmen who their job is really to move legislation to find a consensus within their you know the the members of their party on the committee, but also the other party. A lot of committees work in a bipartisan fashion. And then they move those ideas upwards to the House floor and House leadership controls the floor. Uh, leadership, in addition to controlling the floor, their job is to protect their members from tough votes, to help their members win elections. And I am just very, very, very frustrated that we've been hearing for years now that this is a critical issue. It should not be a partisan issue. Democrats want Republican help and Republicans are laggards on the issue. That may have been true in the past, but the committee chairman the one responsible, Chairman Neal, for getting uh, something done on the Ways and Means side, wanted to work in a bipartisan way. And basically, leadership said, no, this one seat in Congress is more important because of the out, outside chance that Carlos Carbello will run again in 2020. We're not going to have an honest debate about climate because I want to protect this particular seat in South Florida. And so, you know, the question that's been posed to me on Twitter and the question that you guys have posed to me and Brandon's posed to me both, you know, in private and on here is, can we really work with Republicans? Is there really room for a bipartisan path or does it have to be all Democrats? I now think the opposite is true. I'm not sure that we can trust Democrats at all to work on this issue. I think they want to win elections. They want to make it a wedge issue. They want to beat Republicans over the head with it. I think they're frustrated that Republicans are coming to the table. I think they're frustrated that Republicans like Carlos Carbello want a solution. So I now actually believe the only way to address climate is through Republican leadership with some Democrats joining on, not the other way around. Shane, let me tell you where I agree with you, and then I will talk about the 99% of what you just said that I disagree with. <laughs> so on the 1%, I agree with you. I think they should have let Curbelo testify uh, because it doesn't matter. Like, this is such a D.C. thing. If people think that voters—let's say Curbelo runs for Congress. If people think that in two years when voters go to the polls that they're going to be like, well, I saw Curbelo in this congressional testimony on C-SPAN two years ago, and that's why I'm voting for him, they're crazy. Nobody watches those testimonies. It doesn't matter. It's nuts. It's totally nuts. Whether he testified or not, you know, it, it doesn't really matter because people have been paying attention. Everything else you said, I, I 100% disagree with. I mean— Republicans have been the barrier on this issue. I mean, like one of the things that Curbelo said is he said, like, OK, it's this both sides problem. It's not like if you put carbon pricing on the floor right now in Congress, like a majority of Democrats would vote for it. How many Republicans? He he didn't answer that question. He didn't say, you know, Republicans would start voting for this right now. Yeah. And, and actually, a Washington at- Examiner piece pointed out that at the Wednesday hearing Curbelo was supposed to speak at, uh, Republicans totally shot down the concept of a carbon tax. You know, there's a Dave Roberts piece out there, and I know you got in a little Twitter fight with him on Vox, but I'd love to hear how you where you think he's wrong. In, in areas where Democrats have been elected, we have done things on climate change. We have passed laws. You know, where, where Republicans didn't have veto power, we have made progress. In places where Republicans have veto power, we're paralyzed. Right, let me let me respond to, to all of that, starting first with with Congress. Now, uh, the reason that the senators, the Democratic senators said they voted down the Green New Deal, and believe me, I'm not getting off track here, was that they didn't have the hearings. They wanted to educate members. They wanted to inform them about what the bill was, what it was supposed to do. And it wasn't fair to put it up as a show vote before their members were educated. So you said Carlos Curbelo uh, didn't answer the question about would Republicans vote for it. The first step, as Democrats so cleanly articulated when the Green New Deal was in the Senate, is holding these hearings, getting this information out, educating the membership, and then moving up through the committee process and moving on to the floor. They didn't provide Republicans that opportunity. So it's probably true that if you put a carbon tax bill on the floor, most Democrats would vote for it and most Republicans would vote against it. But do the hard work. You're in the majority now. Have Show some, show some leadership. Use your committees the right way. Uh, on the point with David Roberts, here's where he's wrong. There's two things that we know to be 100% true that are not debatable. These are facts. One is climate change is a problem and it's coming for us and we don't have a ton of time to start acting. And two is it is never going to happen that uh, I think his piece was that you have to elect Democrats at every level of government. It is never going to happen that every city and every state and the federal government are under complete Democrat control. So that is conceding that you are not going to address this issue. Step up. 
argue with your opponents like we do. Educate people who are uneducated. Try to win over those you know who are winnable and go through the process. Do the hard work. Just saying, let's beat them at the ballot box. That's a great rallying cry. It might even show you know a bump in polling. It won't work. It's never worked. It's not going to work moving forward. And our country, frankly, is a center right country. Like the 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 the, the idea that you're going to get. Democrats uniformly across the board is insane. The idea that you could make climate a non-political issue is very, very believable. And that's what I'd like to see people do, not not fight with their opponents. Yeah, I think the one thing to point out about that David Roberts piece, which which highlighted how cities and states were, were going for 100 percent, again, in places where they had strong Democratic leadership or, or full Democratic leadership, it did miss out a couple of Republican-led cities. Um, for instance, the town of Georgetown in Texas, where a Republican mayor there is going for 100 percent renewables. So what I think is interesting is if you kind of block off the conversation and, and, and ignore those other examples, you may prevent more people from heading in that direction. I mean, we don't want it to be a one-sided issue. Uh, you know, Democrats are trying to pass legislation. We're debating on our side the best path forward, uh, and I just don't see Republicans doing enough. I mean, the idea that like Repu- that Democrats are using this as like a political wedge when the Republicans made up all of these things about the Green New Deal, about oh, it's killing cows, it's like banning airplanes like that. How is that not the most political thing? Like we're trying we're offering up, you know, policies and principles on this. And Republicans are trying to like, you know, telling false making false accusations about it. Well, that was a tricky one because there was an FAQ that came out FAQ of FAQ is office. not the resolution. It's that not the doesn't matter, thing. though. You know how this plays in the public sphere. Right. They're using the Republicans a st- definitely teed off of it and then they used it to their advantage. I'm not debating they play politics that. with it. And I love how, like, by the way, you know, like r- the way Republicans use power, like they stole a Supreme Court seat, like these secretaries of state in the in the in the state elections. When they get into that office, they make it harder for people of color to vote. Bob Barr just put spin on like a, cr- you know, on the Mueller report and delayed it. Uh, you know, the, the way that Republicans use power on this stuff is is just, I think, absurd. And here we're trying to have a serious conversation about climate, and I don't see the other side doing as much. Brennan, three critical points. One is you're not trying to have a bipartisan conversation. Maybe you are, but Steny Hoyer certainly isn't. His actions speak louder than any Democratic words, right? Uh, Second of all, I think your frustration and a lot of Democrats' frustration with the Supreme Court seat, with what they view as you know malpractice by this administration, those things should not be coming up in a climate debate. And they are. And they are between us right now. And I, my, my fear is that Democrats are so upset about what they view as perceived wrongs coming from the Republican Party that they can't just focus their minds on the problem of climate Block everything else out only when it comes to this issue. I don't mean, you know, in life. Block everything else out and zero in. It's impossible for most Democrats and and, and seemingly you today, at least, to say, I want to address the climate issue. Steny Hoyer was wrong for what he did. We don't need to think about more. We don't need to think about bar. We don't need to think about anything except what the solution to this problem is. And it doesn't seem like we're getting any closer to that. But if you're telling me that what Steny Hoyer did this week, what House Democrats did is an honest, good faith effort towards a bipartisan climate action, I I just can't see it. Then we're not friends anymore. <laughs> no, I said at the top they should have let him testify. But like in the grand scheme of politics, that move it would be like in football if like you know the Democrats were like offsides. Okay, five yard penalty. But like what you're doing on the Green New Deal and the false things you're putting out there is like running through the, to the quarterback ten seconds after the play and like throwing him on the ground and ruining his career. <laughs> Democrats themselves said the Green New Deal was a political document. That's why they voted present. So, of course, Republicans are going to respond with politics to a political document. If they thought it was a policy document, they should have voted for it when it went on the floor. Shane, a question for you. Uh, Former Congressman Curbelo, you know, talked about how we're headed in the right direction. But, you know, he put out a carbon tax bill and, you know, not many of his colleagues joined him. So putting the politics aside what happens on policy measures? You know, how do more Republicans actually get on board? Because it's just a fact that these kinds of hearings weren't happening when Republicans controlled the House. And it's not clear how many actual votes there are out there for such uh, policy. And to the point uh, that, you know, Congressman Curbelo made, there's not much time here. So how do you get people on board on the Republican side faster in a very real way? So that's what these hearings are for. I think you're right that there, there aren't a ton of Republicans, even this Congress, who are going to vote uh, for a carbon tax bill. I think that's, that's a fair statement. But hearings are supposed to be where you bring in witnesses, you bring in experts in all committees, 
and you hear their ideas, you ask them questions, you let them testify, you let them educate you. That is literally the entire point of committees and the entire point of hearings. So I don't know how we get what the policy outcome is. What I do know is that the only way we get a policy outcome is to go through this process. The Republicans who want to participate but don't like a carbon tax, for example, or don't like a specific policy, ask them what it is they want, what they want to do. We hear a lot about you know, carbon capture. We hear about nuclear. There are other things out there, but bring them into the fold. Have those hearings. Let them express their points of view. For those who are against you know, climate action, find out why. Is it because they think it'll increase costs? Is it because they're morally opposed to it for some you know reason that I wouldn't understand? Find out why they don't want to do it. And if there are issues that can be addressed through some you know academic or, or some economist that can actually point to you know some flaws in their argument, maybe we can bring them along. But you gotta go through that process. You can't put up shame votes, right? You can't disinvite people from testifying. Educate people on why they need to play ball. And for those who want to play ball, listen to their ideas on how they want to participate and act in concert. But bringing it to the ballot box is not going to work. And disinviting people from hearings is not going to work. And green groups trying to remove uh, members of Congress and senators from office who are supporting green priorities is not helpful. I mean, here's what like this has come up in the Susan Collins race, like green groups have supported her in the past, right? And now they're trying to decide whether to support her in the future because she has like a decent like rating with some of the green groups. Senator Collins of Maine. Correct? Senator Collins of Maine. But like the, the most important vote that you cast is for majority leader. So like if Mitch McConnell is the majority leader, nothing will happen on climate. We have proven that. Like on those scorecards, it should be like a million points for your vote on majority leader. And then the rest should be like points on how you vote on climate. Wait, what do you mean by that? Like a million points for a leader? Oh, yeah. no, so they she... score these votes, right? That's how they come up with their rating. So like Susan Collins has a decent rating on the environment because she has had, you know, positive votes on the environment, right? So they're saying, okay, you know, should she be endorsed because she has a positive rating? But they forget the vote for majority leader, which should be worth a million times more votes than any other vote. Got it. So what you're saying, Brandon, is that what it really comes down to is political power. And I'm not naive. I'm not going to pretend like, you know, I'm not an honest broker. I, I hear you. I understand it. I want to win elections too. I'm not trying to shame you. But we, we have to silo off this specific issue if we genuinely think the threat is real and it's imminent. Because I just don't know, like we've been playing political games as a country for over 200 years, and I'm just not sure how we maintain your attitude that it's all about voting for the majority leader and also address this issue at the same time. I just don't think we have time. This isn't like another dormant issue where you deal with it or you don't, you know, at your leisure. This, this is coming for us whether we like it or not, and I'm just not sure we have time to try to win majorities yeah. before we try Shane, to solve it. where you're hearing my frustration is just that, like, I'd love to do that, but we're not we're not seeing it. And, you know, the one time that Democrats play politics with this issue, that was a minor infraction, you know, bouncing, you know, Curbelo from the testimony. It's like, oh, we're so upset you're playing politics with this. But meanwhile, like Republicans have been playing politics with this issue for decades and making it so hard. So that's where you're hearing the frustration. Yeah, I think a lot of Democrats would be very frustrated and would, would be very skeptical that Republicans are truly being honest brokers in this, if we're just being honest. You know, as we all, as we often say in politics, it is it is fully possible for two things to be true at the same time. So you're 100 percent right. I'm not going to deny that at all. Republicans have been using this issue as a political wedge issue uh, for decades. And Democrats have been trying to address it through, you know, through legislation, through regulation. But the only way to move forward is to not be upset about the past. And I realize that's a big ask because we're asking it of Democrats. You're not asking it of us. I understand that. But I'm just not sure you know, if we if we really believe, again, in the imminence of this issue, I'm just not sure that there's another option. Well, what I think would be interesting to get into at some point is the policy again, and not just the politics here, because I actually think the policy is what's ultimately making the politics so toxic. It comes down to, do you see gas in the future? Do you see oil and gas in a in a in the future in America? Uh, Carlos Corbello's own proposal would pull back other types of regulations, presumably environmental protection agency regulations uh, for clean air and possibly clean water. I don't know exactly what he wants to get at there, but that's a major point of conflict. You know, repealing the gas tax, another key part of his legislation, his proposal. That's a tricky one that funds America's roads and bridges and all, all that good infrastructure stuff. And I actually think that's why there's so much you know heat on this, because people do just fundamentally disagree on what the solutions are and what that means for the U.S. economy. And, you know, we even see that in Joe Biden's race. So 
definitely there's lots to hash out there on the on the policy side and I hope we can just continue to do that hopefully we have Congressman Curbelo back on the show other experts and we can really flesh that out a little more yeah one final remark I'll make it you know where I agree with you, Shane, too, and Curbelo is this is why I asked him about the filibuster. If we keep the filibuster and we require 60 votes in the Senate, you know, then like there is there's that is not going to happen anytime soon where any party is going to have more than 60 votes there. So it is going to force what you guys are talking about. And we'll leave it there and turn to our section on saying something nice. And now for our final section, if you can't say something nice or our Democrat and Republican have to say something pleasant or kind to one another, uh, Brandon, what do you have? This is a shocker. Bring it on. I'm going to say something nice about a Trump tweet. Whoa. This will never happen again. (laughs) So enjoy it while it lasts, Shane. Um, Never say never. Trump tweeted support for GM selling its... GM abandoned its plant in Lordstown, Ohio, right? And so Trump tweeted support for GM um, reopening that plant by selling it to Workhorse to produce electric pickup trucks. This is from the guy who says that this stuff doesn't work. And because of his tweet, the stock for Workhorse went up like 200% that day. And it just shows like the power of the presidency. Like he could use that power for good. He could talk about you know, how electric trucks could be good for, you know, our economy and creating jobs. Um, I'd like to see him do more of it. So interesting, because, yeah, he clearly tweeted it once he realized that there was a jobs benefit in an area that matters to him. And the technology was an aside. That's so interesting. Shane, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I want to weigh in on Brandon's first. I mean, there's no doubt that President Trump has tried to be a champion of the American worker and American manufacturing. And the frustration of, of some folks like me are that a lot of where we can go in American manufacturing is in clean energy, is in you know cool upgrades to our energy infrastructure, and in this case, you know electric vehicles. I hope that this tweet is not a one-off. I hope it's the beginning of a realization that a lot of the things that he wants, being bringing uh, manufacturing back to the industrial Midwest, can happen, and it can be part of building a cleaner future, and it can be part of electrifying the auto sector, and it can be part of all the great things that we talk about on this show. Um, for my part, I want to say something nice about, and again, I want to be clear, I'm not hoping that that uh, Democrats win elections, but about the service First Women's Victory Fund. Now, I apologize if I get some of these names wrong, but Mikey Sherrill, Abigail Spamberger, Chrissy Houlihan, Elaine Luria, and Alyssa Slotkin are Democratic uh, uh, congressmen. They're all women, and they're all women who have served in in the military or in the CIA or you know as, as local prosecutors or served uh, in some way their community before being elected to Congress. And when I read about what they were trying to do, they're basically trying to articulate that they're are Democrats in Congress right now that are trying to find, you know, a a path to governance that are not trying to become the loudest or most exciting people on cable news, but actually become the most productive people in the halls of Congress. And I feel like we're missing that on both sides of the aisle at times right now. So, so that got me just a little bit excited that there are groups of people getting together and saying, Hey, we just got elected. Uh, We want to stay here and we think we can be productive while we're here. And that doesn't always get reflected on, on Twitter and on cable news. What are they doing exactly? It's a victory fund. So basically, they've joined together. Uh, presumably, they're pursuing policy. I, I haven't, you know, spoken to any of them. But this is sort of a fundraising pack to help elect uh, middle middle of the road Democrats who who want to move forward on important policy issues. That's you know, I'm basing this off of reading news reports. Shane, it's a good thing uh, you're not here in person today because when you called. You said Trump is a champion of the American worker. My eyes like rolled back into my head, kind of like Bran in Game of Thrones. He does that warging thing. Um, so you missed that. <laughs> Two Game of Thrones references in one episode. <laughs> Do you work for HBO? <laughs> Everybody's talking about it. I know. <laughs> well, everyone may be talking about Game of Thrones, but we are done talking here today. So this is the end of our episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is Political Climate. You can find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate be sure to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher uh, google play wherever you like to listen and until next time go sansa <laughs> <laughs>